Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the 19th of September 1923 and in Sydney a gigantic project is about to have its practical physical beginning. Land and residences at North Sydney have been resumed, cleared and demolished and a steel building has been thrown up to house three compressors. When they're switched on there'll be a quick sharp chatter and the hiss of escaping air as holes are drilled into the sandstone. This is what will be called the first act of construction. After a century of waiting, Sydney's south and north shores are to be joined by a bridge. A great bridge of steel, towering high over the harbour, it'll change the face and nature of the city and give the world Australia's first recognisable man-made landmark. But that's all to come in the decade ahead. Now, the switch on number one compressor is to be thrown. It's a metal lever with a big white handle. John Bradfield, bridge designer and its chief engineer, is on hand. But the father of the bridge isn't going to do the honours, nor are the various government ministers also present. Instead, construction is to be officially started by Kathleen Muriel Butler. But this isn't some sort of ceremonial pleasantry, like Lady Muck cracking a champagne bottle across the hull of an ocean liner. Kathleen Butler has earned her place to stand here and flip this switch. Officially, her title is Secretary to John Bradfield. But Secretary, in our usual modern understanding, doesn't do her justice in the slightest. Kathleen Butler is Secretary to the Sydney Harbour Bridge Project in the sense that a Cabinet Minister might take this title when running one of the government's most important departments. A century hence, her title would be Project Manager. For this reason, back when the bridge was being born, Kathleen Butler was dubbed the Bridge Girl, and, more reverently, the godmother of the bridge. Yet, neither of those terms do her justice either. 
Standing with her hand on the switch of compressor number one, she's devoted nearly a dozen years of her life to making the long-held dream of a bridge come true. Kathleen Butler has been there every step of the way, taking on responsibilities far greater than anyone else, with the exception of John Bradfield. So, if he's the father of the project, she's not the godmother of the bridge. Kathleen Butler is the mother of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, Kathleen Butler, Mother of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. This week marks the 90th anniversary of the bridge being opened. It's one of the great moments in our history, for what it took to get there, for the personalities involved, for the sacrifices made, for what happened on that day. We're well acquainted with yarns such as Vincent Kelly, the worker who survived a fall from the bridge while it was under construction. And we know about 16 men who weren't so lucky, dying in accidents. We know about Lenny Gwyther, the nine-year-old boy who rode his horse from Victoria to see the bridge opening. And to Francis de Groot, the fascist New Guard member, determined that Premier Jack Lang shouldn't be the one to cut the ribbon. Hell, we even know about the family of cats that used to live on one of the pylons. But somehow, the story of Kathleen Butler, the only woman to be involved in the crucial development of the bridge, hasn't often been told, and when it has, it hasn't been in much detail. And that's odd, really, because her name and her story were news in the 1920s. At the start of the 1890s, Mount Victoria, 3,500 feet above sea level, 75 miles west of Sydney, was a pretty nice place to live. At the top of the Blue Mountains, it was used as a retreat for wealthy city people, who were drawn by its invigorating air and its scenery. Other local destinations, such as Katoomba and Blackheath, were yet to rival it for charm. It was here in Mount Victoria that Kathleen Muriel Butler spent her childhood. She was born in Lithgow on the 27th of February 1891. Kathleen's father, William, was from Leicestershire in England, and he'd worked on the railways there before coming to Australia in 1878. With his experience, William got a job as a station master at Brawongal. But soon afterwards, he transferred to Mount Victoria. And there, for most of the next 35 years, he'd be the night station master. This was a really important job, given the bulk of visitors to Mount Victoria arrived by train, it then being a long, hard climb from the city for horse-drawn coaches. In 1883, William married Annie Gaffney, an Irish immigrant a dozen years his junior. They were a good Catholic couple who'd have seven children. The butlers would instill in these offspring the values of education and hard work, and the boys and girls would grow up to make their way in the world, in hospitality, civil administration, in the railways, and in engineering. The Butler family lived in the lovely Stratford Cottage at Mount Victoria, which still stands as a heritage-listed Airbnb. Little Kathleen went to the local Mount Victoria Public School as an infant. Her father, who loved nothing more than to chat about the railways, no doubt had an influence on her future career. But Kathleen would say it was her mother Annie, skilled at drawing architectural plans and at overseeing the construction of a building, who was her chief inspiration. After primary school, Kathleen went to Mount St Mary's College in Katoomba. There were about 50 students who wore white dresses with blue sashes, making them look like a little cluster of clouds in mountain skies on a clear day. 
Kathleen was a talented piano player and she won school prizes and led recitals. While Kathleen might have been good at academic subjects, she didn't figure in the local paper's roundup of prizes given out for subjects such as writing and mathematics. But at the age of 10, she did make her newspaper debut with a letter to the kids section of the Catholic Press in Sydney. Dear Playmate, she began, as this is my first letter to the Catholic Press, I hope to see it in print. I go to school every day and like it very much. It was a humble start. But two decades down the track, Kathleen's name would constantly be in print and her articles would bring Australia's greatest wonder to hundreds of thousands of readers. Kathleen appears to have left school in 1907 at the age of 16. That year, her future began to be written down the hill, that is, west of Mount Victoria at the Lithgow Ironworks. A resident inspector named Mr. William Burrow was appointed by the government to test all materials supplied under contract. This was to ensure quality and integrity. But it'd be a while before a testing house was built and equipment installed. That work had been completed towards the end of that year and Mr. Burrow was advertising various positions. It had later be reported that Kathleen joined the staff when the government testing office opened, which would make it late 1907. If so, she might have been hired in some sort of temporary capacity, because Kathleen's public service record lists her commencing in December 1910. If that was the case, it coincided with the enlargement of the testing office. This expansion was because the government had entered into a big contract with Messrs Hoskins for manufacture of steel rails. As the Mercury reported of the expansion, plans have been prepared for a new and modern building. This new facility would contain, quote, a large machine testing room, machine room, engine house, workshop, etc. Also a fully equipped chemical laboratory, clerks and engineers offices. When completed, the government testing works at Lithgow will compare favourably with any similar institution in England or America. The testing office was on its way to greatness, and Kathleen, in her late teens, had her first job using her school commercial training as a clerk and typist to head honcho Mr. Burrow. She'd later say that this was where her interest in what we'd today call STEM really took hold. She liked the calculations, the chemistry, the problem-solving done by the government testing office, and she was learning on the job. But in 1911, her boss, Mr. Burrow, was in a world of pain. First, his little son died of appendicitis. Then, Mr. Burrow was declared bankrupt, having amassed a staggering £1,400 in debts to just about everyone – hotel keepers, government department heads, and even his own junior employees. Later in 1911, the hammer dropped. Mr. Burrow was suspended from the public service, accused of accepting a loan and free rent from Mr. Hoskins in return for turning a blind eye to using substandard materials that was to go for government works, including the railways. There was a royal commission in which Mr. Hoskins admitted the loan but denied any corruption. Mr. Burrow would be transferred to other government projects. But the wash-up for employees was that the state government cancelled its ironwork contracts, just as the new testing office was complete and all the machinery had been installed. In mid-December 1911, the Lithgow Mercury reported on this cutting-edge facility, quote, This will be oiled and covered up, and the office will be closed. As for the workers, the report said staff had been disbanded. Quote, 
Word was received on Thursday of last week that four members were to report themselves to the Works Department, Sydney, on the following morning. This would appear to have put Kathleen Butler in Sydney right at a crucial time in the development of what would become known as the Sydney Harbour Bridge. In January 1788, Captain, soon-to-be Governor, Arthur Phillip, chose Port Jackson as the site for the English convict colony because it was, quote, being without exception, the finest harbour in the world. The Eora people who'd lived there for tens of thousands of years already knew that, and when they wanted to cross the waters from south to north or the other way around, they simply did so in canoes. Europeans would also have to use their vessels to get across the harbour. The commercialisation of this began in 1807, with Jamaican-born former convict Billy Blue becoming the first licensed boatman, able to ferry passengers back and forth. But other people soon had other ideas about a more permanent solution, for a bridge that wouldn't only benefit the town, but be the pride of its people. In 1815, Francis Greenway, the government architect to Lachlan Macquarie, was reportedly the first to propose a bridge. Ten years later, 1825, he wrote in the Australian newspaper, quote, Thus in the event of the bridge being thrown across from Dawes Battery to the North Shore, a town would be built on that shore and would have formed with these buildings a grand hole that would indeed have surprised anyone on entering the harbour and have given an idea of the strength and magnificence that would have reflected credit and glory on the colony and the mother country. Additionally, Francis Greenway said, it might, quote, have been easily accomplished, which I can prove, by the same number of hands that have worse than wasted their time in mutilating the buildings they cannot properly finish. So our most famous early architect thought a harbour bridge was going to be a cinch. In the century that followed, there were numerous plans and designs. In 1840, a floating bridge was suggested. In 1857, an engineer named Peter Henderson drew the first bridge design. It was a pretty basic affair. A straight iron roadway from Dawes Point to Milson's Point held aloft by two masonry towers. 20 years after that, it was back to a floating bridge design that could carry people, vehicles and even trains. In 1890, a Royal Commission received eight plans for bridges and four for tunnels. The commissioners rejected any crossing as inexpedient. But they did say that if ever one should be necessary, it ought to be a bridge. Cut to 1896 to 1899, and four bills were introduced into Parliament for crossings. Two were for tunnels, two were for bridges. All four were to be realised via private enterprise, and all four went nowhere. In 1900, the Minister for Public Works received competitive designs, and all were deemed unsatisfactory. A year later, an advisory board recommended a bridge, called for interest, and accepted a £2 million tender which was then rejected by the government. In 1908-1909, a Royal Commission was in favour of separate tunnels for trains, trams and private vehicles. This also went nowhere. Then, in 1911, the government decided a definite plan for a bridge and subway to connect rails to North Sydney had to be made. Initially, this bridge wasn't going to carry trains. But in 1912, John Bradfield, an engineer since 1889 and by then assistant engineer for the Department of Public Works, submitted his plan. It was to be a, quote, 
cantilever bridge from Dawes Point to Milsons Point carrying four lines of railway, one roadway 35 feet wide, one motor roadway 17 feet 6 inches wide and one footway 15 feet wide at an estimated cost of £2,750,000. This bridge would be connected to an underground city railway system. Bradfield's plan was accepted and on the 1st of July 1912, the Sydney Harbour Bridge and City Transit Branch was inaugurated under his command as Chief Engineer. The very first person John Bradfield hired was Kathleen Butler, then 21 years old, an able typist and stenographer who crucially already had years of experience in the engineering industry. As the evening news would later report, quote, she was appointed on her merits and because she had mastered all sorts of intricate technical matters of engineering during the years she was in the government service. John Bradfield proved an inspiring leader. The Queenslander newspaper would later paraphrase Kathleen saying he had from the start, quote, encouraged her interest in all mathematical calculations and conditions connected with engineering works. The article continued, Miss Butler found a delight in specifications and calculations, which, combined with her commercial training, speedily made her presence a valuable asset to the office. The decade that followed was a tough one for the Sydney Harbour Bridge team. One difficulty was that Bradfield lost numerous male employees when they signed up to fight in the Great War. But Kathleen Butler? She was there every step of the way. Kathleen was at Bradfield's elbow and learning everything as his designs constantly evolved. She was becoming familiar with chemical compositions and steel strengths and load bearing and the pros and cons of cantilever, arch and suspension bridges. Kathleen was also learning that building a bridge this big and this important was about more than rivets, plates, cables and pylons. It was about winning over politicians and the people. With the exception of her boss, Kathleen Butler came to know more about what it would take to build the Sydney Harbour Bridge than anyone else anywhere. Knowledge wasn't power though. Power to actually authorise the construction of the bridge rested with the New South Wales government. In 1916, a bill to build the bridge was passed twice by the Legislative Assembly and then twice defeated by the Legislative Council. This was partly because the council members worried their country constituents would see them as favouring city interests. After the Great War ended in 1918 and the Spanish flu that followed had subsided, some semblance of normality returned and pressure was brought to bear on the government again. The need for a bridge was clearer than ever. Back in 1881, Sydney's population had been 230,000, of whom only 10,000 lived north of the harbour. By 1922, Sydney's population had reached 930,000, but only 150,000 lived on the north side. The southern side had five times the population packed into an area half the size, and this density was blamed on slum conditions and water shortages in summer. Congestion was also a huge problem. But these issues could be alleviated by a bridge that was combined with an electrification of the suburban railways and the creation of the city subway system. Make Bradfield's plan a reality, and Sydney would be opened up. 
As Kathleen Butler, working from Bradfield's notes but adding her own flourishes, was to soon write in the Sydney Mail, quote, Before very long, the wide, unoccupied acres of North Sydney, offering ideal conditions for suburban residents, will be available to relieve the present overcrowding. She continued, The newer suburban city, along the lovely coastline, north from the harbour mouth, will stretch as far as Newport, a beautiful place which at present cannot be visited unless a man has a day to spare. These were the sort of enticing arguments that John Bradfield and Kathleen Butler were presenting to New South Wales politicians. In 1920, a bill to build the bridge was passed for a third time by the Legislative Assembly, but Parliament dissolved before the Legislative Council could vote. In March 1922, Bradfield went to America. There, he talked to the great engineering firms. His next stop would be England. Bradfield's plan was for a cantilever bridge, but recent developments in steel production had led him to think that an arch bridge would offer significant savings. So he'd present both options to potential tenderers. Bradfield's mission was to convince these firms that the New South Wales government, which was still yet to pass legislation, was actually serious about building its bridge. Apart from his own belief, his arsenal consisted of the specifications he'd brought, specs that Kathleen Butler had written and organised. As the Sydney Mail reported, firms accepted his assurances. They were also in the habit of, quote, complimenting him on the comprehensive character of his specification, and that led them to start working out their tenders. So the ball was rolling. Then the rumour came that the New South Wales government was trying to stop it. Sir George Fuller had been elected in April and he wanted to kill the bridge project. So the government decided to send a cable telling Bradfield to stay in New York until the issue was resolved. It was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald that the government intended to recall him. But before the slow-moving government got its act together to send this cable, Kathleen, having learned of this potential change of heart, flashed a message through to her boss. It told Bradfield not to be where the government's cable might find him. So he moved on to England. When the government's telegram arrived, Bradfield wasn't there to receive it. He was plausibly able to say he'd not disobeyed instructions because he'd never gotten them. By the time he got to England and could be found, the New South Wales government had changed its mind again and everything was back on. The government would deny ever sending such a cable. But later, in an oral history interview, Public Works engineer Harry Peach, who worked in Bradfield's office alongside Kathleen, confirmed the truth of this story. The cable affair was a crucial moment. If not for Kathleen's quick thinking and action, the project might have stalled yet again. This also would have sent a bad message to potential tenderers about the sketchiness of decision makers down in Sydney. During this important lead-up to the bridge bill being considered again, Kathleen suffered a great loss when her mother died in June 1922. Sadly, Annie passed away just months before her daughter was recognised for the decade of quiet hard work that she'd done on behalf of the city, the state and the nation. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
In September 1922, the New South Wales government again considered a bill, guided by a document titled Notes on the Sydney Harbour Bridge Bill that Kathleen Butler had prepared. In November, finally, the Legislative Council voted in its favour by 41 to 13. It was now the Sydney Harbour Bridge Act. As Kathleen would note in the Sydney Mail with some pride, her quote, clear and informative notes materially assisted the passage of the bill through the Legislative Assembly and Council. Tenders for an arch or cantilever bridge based on Bradfield's designs had been called for. It was actually going to happen. As the Sunday Times headline read, Sydney is to have a bridge. Parliament has acted at last. The paper ran images of the competing designs. An arch bridge, which they said might cost £400,000 less, and a cantilever bridge claimed to be the strongest and most solid design for big bridges. Now that his hour had truly come, the chief engineer John Bradfield might have downplayed the role of his female secretary. But Bradfield did the opposite. He wanted the world to know that Kathleen Butler had been integral to the struggle of the past decade. In a big speech about the bridge, Bradfield said, quote, I desire to express my appreciation of the assistance afforded me by one of my officers, Miss Butler, who arranged and indexed the specification on which tenders for the bridge has been issued from my office. I drafted the specification. Miss Butler arranged it and did it uncommonly well. She also dealt with all matters arising in connection with tenders while I was abroad, replied to all correspondence, and prepared the very complete information supplied to the Legislative Assembly and Council, which information was largely responsible for the act reaching finality. Additionally, Bradfield quoted a letter from Mr. A. E. Ellis, the manager of the Pittsburgh Testing Laboratory. Quote, We have made a complete study of the plans and specifications concerning the construction of the cantilever bridge across Sydney Harbour, and we wish to take this opportunity of complimenting you on being the author of what seems to us to have been a most complete and comprehensive specification than any we have thus far encountered in our experience of inspecting large bridges. Bradfield knew that a picture was worth a thousand words, and he ensured that Kathleen was present at historic moments. The Sydney Mail's headline read, At last, Sydney Harbour Bridge Assured. The centrepiece for this story was a group photograph captioned, The Minister for Works and the officers directly associated with him in the passing of the bill. The image showed a big wooden table, piled with files in a typically stuffy office. At this table sat John Bradfield, T.B. Cooper, Under Secretary for Public Works, and Mr. R.T. Ball, the Minister for Public Works. Three men. And in the centre of this centrepiece photo, Miss K.M. Butler, Clark to Mr. Bradfield. That a Clark would be so featured must have been mystifying to some readers. The Sunday Times coverage made it quite clear what her role was, running her portrait and giving her a separate story. The headline, Godmother of the Bridge. And the subhead, Clever Girl in Designer's Office Helps in Gigantic Undertaking. The article began, quote, If the worn-out term the weaker sex meant that women are intellectually inferior to men in brain possibilities, Miss Kathleen Butler, secretary and clerk to Mr. J.J.C. Bradfield, the bridge designer, would put the argument all askew. 
it continued. Mr. Bradfield is the father of the bridge, but Miss Butler is the godmother, and in a special paper he has issued on the subject, Mr. Bradfield states that he has not the slightest hesitation in saying that it would be impossible for a better arranged specification to have been prepared in any office. The article reiterated the essence of Bradfield's statement, but the Sunday Times added its own commentary. Quote, Miss Butler dealt with all phases of the big undertaking, wages, manufacture, prices, and general expenses. An idea of her task can be gained by the realization of the fact that the building of the bridge is a gigantic matter of a £5 million contract. Kathleen Butler wasn't just featured in news about the Sydney Harbour Bridge, she was writing it. After the first sod was turned in North Sydney in July 1923 and Kathleen switched on compressor number one two months later, she contributed frequent, very detailed and very long feature articles to the Sydney Mail as the deadline for tenders approached. These were based on John Bradfield's notes, but as his praise for her specification suggested, she had plenty of scope to inject her own reflections and observations. The articles covered work to date, various problems to be overcome, the specifications of various designs. They were a mixture of the dry and the colourful, with snippets of well-written harbour history butting up against the hard science of steel chemical compositions. In November 1923, for instance, there was a more general piece titled A Great Scheme for a New Sydney, which envisaged the city going skyward and George Street flanked by tall buildings from the quay to Broadway. Another article that month, though, was called The City Railway, Combating Dust and Heat Problems, and it looked at how engineers had tackled these issues in the subways of other great world metropolises. During this time, Bradfield and the Minister for Works and Railways were meeting representatives of firms from the United States, England, Belgium, Scotland and Canada. Kathleen Butler was in all of these meetings, privy to the most confidential information, aware of what each of these companies proposed for Sydney. The Daily Telegraph at this time headlined a piece about her, The Bridge Girl, Chief's Right Hand. It said, quote, She and the Chief Engineer alone know their viewpoint and the many issues involved and the points raised by tenderers. With first-hand good general knowledge of the engineering problems and gifted with imagination and a facile pen, Miss Butler has written several interesting articles on the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the City Railway. The paper also said she enjoyed tennis, swimming and dancing. Of course, reports would scarcely mention John Bradfield's leisure activities. This was because even complimentary articles about Kathleen would have to come with this reassurance that she was still a normal girl. The Daily Telegraph's piece continued, quote, She is happy and healthy, and her big job sits lightly on her young shoulders, maybe because she loves her work. John Bradfield would soon submit his plans for the bridge and city railway as his thesis for what would become the first doctorate of engineering conferred by Sydney University. In his prefatory acknowledgements, he again singled out Kathleen. He said she was the first branch employee, that she'd been his only assistant in prepping the specification, that the technique of presenting it was hers alone, and that she had, quote, at all times carried out her duties with foresight, tact, and marked ability, and, quote, her conscientiousness and efficient help has materially lightened the responsibility which the design and construction of these two great engineering works have entailed. 
and in this thesis, I wish to place on record my sincere thanks to the lady for her invaluable assistance. In early 1924, Kathleen wrote of the excitement about the approaching tender deadline in the Sydney Mail. Quote, Romance is now about to become reality. Tenders close on January the 16th, and the one outstanding thought in the minds of the visitors is where will the contract for the bridge be placed? Part of it in New South Wales, for a certainty, but where the rest? In the lowlands of Scotland, the north country of England, Flanders fields, the land of the maple leaf, or of the stars and stripes? We shall know before very long now. The Blue Mountains Echo was very proud of the local girl made good, saying she, quote, writes national history, which was true in both senses as a pioneering woman in the workforce and as the author of the main source of information about the bridge for the Australian public. The Echo asked, quote, How many countries could say they possessed a girl who herself was the possessor of brain power that makes her fit to take a prominent part in the execution of some work of gigantic national importance? On the day that tenders closed, Kathleen let her facile pen soar in an article with the Sydney Mail that was titled A Red Letter Event in the History of Sydney's Progress. Quote, Tenders closed today in the month sacred to Janus, the god of the past, present and future, the patron of all beginnings. The bridge is now beyond the sphere of politics and the two faces of the god have no sinister suggestiveness. Janus shared his throne with the exiled Saturn, and their reign has been called the Age of Gold. Seven years hence, the bridge will be returning annually to the coffers of the state, clear £200,000 at least over and above interest and all other expenses. Truly, a bridge of gold soaring into heaven's blue dome. While the timeline and the revenue stream was a little optimistic, the Bridge of Gold certainly had a nicer ring to it than the Iron Coat Hanger. On the 16th of January, the tenders were in, from six companies who offered a total of 20 designs. They were put into a big special box and then drawn out one by one to be opened. The Sydney Morning Herald's photographer was there to catch history in the making. Kathleen would later say, quote, I was the only woman present in the minister's room when the tenders were opened. It was a most exciting moment. But now Kathleen had more hard work ahead of her. She, Bradfield, and a junior design engineer named George Stuckey would labour around the clock to assess all of the designs, all of the tenders, ensuring they met specifications and that the projected costs and timelines were acceptable and feasible. They had to come up with a winner and a report for the government. Kathleen would say, quote, We were working on that report six weeks, night and day, because the tenderers were all waiting to hear their fate and we wanted to let them get back to America, England and Canada as soon as possible. I think I knew that report and the specification off by heart. As we'll hear in part two, that sort of claim, that she knew the specification off by heart, had plenty of evidence to back it up. While this tender review process was underway, Bradfield made a statement to record his appreciation, saying, quote, These two officers have cheerfully worked incessantly, Saturdays and Sundays, assisting me to present my report to the minister at the earliest possible moment. When everything was said and done, Bradfield favoured Dorman Long and Company's A3 tender, which was based on his design, and this was for the arch bridge with monumental pylons. 
He asked Kathleen Butler and George Stuckey which one they favoured. They both went for A3 as well. Sydney had a winner. The trio prepared their big report and recommendation to the government. Sydney had its bridge design and the company that could make it a reality. On the 12th of March, the Sydney Mail had a glorious illustration of the arch bridge as it might appear lit up on its opening night. Two weeks later, when the government officially accepted Dorman Long's tender for £4.7 million, the Sydney Morning Herald was again there for the photo. Kathleen standing at Mr Ball's shoulder as he signed this historic document, flanked by Bradfield, Under Secretary for Works T.B. Cooper and the department's legal officer. The tender was won. The arch bridge would be built by Dorman Long. But someone had to go over everything with them in London, set up an office and supervise all final dealings with the company, establish relationships, check and recheck specifications and costs, visit and inspect steel mills. But John Bradfield needed to stay in Sydney to deal with the political end of things. He said there was only one person qualified to go to London, Kathleen Butler. While press coverage about her was usually very positive, it'd be a mistake to think that there wasn't misogynistic grumbling about a woman taking on such a role. We get a sense of this in a piece in the evening news on the eve of her departure. It was headlined, Because of a Woman, and it began, The departure of Miss Kathleen Butler to London on her bridge mission was resented in some quarters. She was a woman, that was all. But Kathleen was going. Bradfield had made his decision, and he was backed up by the Minister for Public Works, Mr Ball. At a time when Australia had very few women engaged in professional work, particularly in science, architecture, building and engineering, this was quite simply extraordinary. The Sydney Mail put it well, quote, Miss Butler will be in charge of the bridge business on behalf of New South Wales for six months. It is a great win for the sex and Miss Butler. There was no doubting that. In mid-1924, Kathleen had charge of one of the biggest construction projects in human history. Kathleen Butler had earned her position in a male-dominated world. But... Could she keep it in a time when a woman really couldn't have it all? I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of Kathleen Butler, Mother of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Part two will be released tomorrow, the 90th anniversary of the opening of the bridge. Big, big thanks to Kathleen's grandchildren, Morris and Maria Sloan, for sharing their memories with me. To make this episode, I have, as usual, delved into archival newspapers found at the National Library of Australia's Trove database and records at ancestry.com.au. Thanks to contributions from Patreon supporters, I also picked up four second-hand books about the bridge and its designer, John Bradfield. These were The Unreasonable Man, The Life and Works of J.J.C. Bradfield by Richard Raxworthy, published in 1989. The Sydney Harbour Bridge, A Life by Peter Spirit, 1982. The Proud Arch, The Story of the Sydney Harbour Bridge by David Elliard and Richard Raxworthy, 1982. And finally, The Bridge by Peter Laylor, first published in 2005. These books are great for information on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, but to be honest, there's very little about Kathleen Butler in them. I hope that this podcast fills some of those gaps. If you'd like to support the work I do, go to patreon.com forward slash forgotten Australia. 
This link is also in your show notes. For a few bucks a month, you'll help me access research materials to help ensure that no stones left unturned in the making of these episodes. As a thank you, you'll get a show shout-out, early ad-free access to episodes, bonus shows, and my audiobook, Australia's Sweetheart. A big, big thank you to recent supporters, Susan Pryor, Shannon Colgan, Daniel H., Martin, and Andrew Eastwood. Cheers, guys. I really appreciate it. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.